Welcome everyone to the 16th episode of POV Crypto. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. Been kicking it on the couch, watching football all day. David was actually hitting me up trying to start this podcast like an hour ago and I was like, five more minutes, five more minutes. <laughs> so finally got here. We're doing it. Episode number 16. This is going to be a great one. Yeah, we're going to do a proof of work versus proof of stake episode. It's been a while since I've seen a good discussion in the space about the potential of proof of work and proof of stake that doesn't simply boil down to how proof of stake doesn't use electricity. It's really go the conversation goes a hundred times deeper than that. And so Christian and I are going to start peeling the layers back and talking about uh, the differences, the economic differences between these two systems. Yeah, I think this is the, one of the most highly contested uh, and divisive subjects in the space. People essentially are design coins to either utilize proof of work or avoid it. Um, so I think this is pivotal. And it was really inspired by episode number 15 with David's colleague at Bunker Mining. Uh, if you haven't checked out episode 15 yet, you probably should. David, you want to kind of give people a little bit of background on what we talked about in that episode? Brian comes from the earliest days of Bitcoin mining, starting when it was just with uh, GPUs um, before really ASICs and large scale facilities got involved. Uh, and, and the pitch that Bunker Mining is giving to the world is that the 2016-2017 price rises in Bitcoin produced this mania and this urgency for Bitcoin mining facilities to set up shop as fast as possible and not really thinking about the long-term future because of how much money there was to be made now. Uh, and now that that the move fast and break things mentality of these uh, mining facilities is really starting to come back and bite them in the butt. So Bunker Mining is really dedicated on creating future-proof mining facilities that leverage economies of scale in order to really protect their facility, their investment, and therefore Bitcoin. Uh, and the main way they're doing that is by building a mining facility and integrating it into a power generation uh, plant. Uh, and so it, it, it's a bet on the future of Bitcoin mining, and it's really illustrative of where uh, Bunker Mining thinks that uh, the future of Bitcoin mining is going. It's a great primer for this episode, so do please check it out. If you have not yet, please follow the pod on Twitter at POV Crypto Pod. You can find me at Trustless underscore state. Yeah, you can find me, Christian, at CK underscore snarks. And I mean, let's just jump right into it, David. What is proof of work? What is proof of stake? And why are people so passionate about these things? Proof of work to me was the clearest and most obvious uh, way for a consensus mechanism to be generated. Uh, it was the what Satoshi had at his disposal uh, in order to bootstrap the Bitcoin network. And it really was the logical conclusion of what must come first in terms of cryptocurrency. You can't start a proof of stake network uh, with uh, something that's valueless. And so the proof of work uh, mechanism of burning electricity, which is something that's valuable in order to produce coins, automatically attributes value to the coins um, and then the security that, that unfolds continues to back it up. Just like David said, from the earliest days before Bitcoin had any trading value, miners or people who were dedicating their computer to solving the SHA-256, the SHA-2 algorithm, you know, essentially were sacrificing a resource and paying for the electricity. So that was like initial price before these digital, you know, magic money had any sort of value or trade value on the market. Um, but kind of going beyond that, um, proof of work is how Bitcoin one secures itself as well as two keeps everyone in consensus. That's why it's called a consensus mechanism has very specific rules with how much energy has to be burned for a block to be found. Um, and that essentially ensures that no one can game the system and take control of the blocks or the changes to the ledger without uh, following the rules. So everyone stays on the same page, stays in consensus. I would say that Bitcoin believers, and I agree with this as well, um, would say that over time, and I, I've gotten this opinion from Bitcoin miners as well, is over time, there's really only going to be one proof of work chain. And that's just a simple question of economics. Uh, it's unlikely that other proof of work chains will really generate the attention and promise of uh, value return uh, simply because it, it, if it's more profitable and more secure to mine Bitcoin, it's it's going to 
take over uh, the the proportion of people's facilities. So even when like Litecoin was a, a bigger deal and Bitcoin Cash was a bigger deal, uh, facilities would uh, dedicate maybe a, a chunk of their facility to mining altcoins just because they are incentivized to do so because of the economics. But uh, I think the general consensus among Bitcoin mining veterans is that more and more facilities are just going to be dedicated exclusively to Bitcoin and not really be interested in altcoins um, simply because it's just not going to be economically rational. Just to kind of build up on that too, this is how network effects work. The bigger, more powerful, more secure chain is going to command more attention and um, more resources allocated to it. And that compounds on itself. You know, and it's very, very difficult to catch up with if you are an alternative currency. On top of that, um, if you just even talk about how manufacturing, so uh, how manufacturing works. Uh, at this point, Bitcoin is run on customized or on uh, use case specific hardware. So it's uh, chips that all, all they do is solve the the function. So your laptop that can do a lot of things is not going to be able to compete with this computer that all it does is mine Bitcoin. These chips require very specific foundry you know, situation at factories and, and, and room and dedication of resources at a factory. So a factory is going to, you know, every factory that is building mining chips is going to be one building Bitcoin chips, and then they might build other stuff. So that has a compounding factor too with what hardware is on the market and what's available and what's being invested in. And it's just a very powerful kind of black hole cycle. Going into a further detail about how things might or I think will tend to converge on Bitcoin, uh, we can talk about Bitcoin Cash and now also Bitcoin SV at, uh, in, the same, in the same breath here because these two uh, coins in particular use the same algorithm as uh, Bitcoin. They all, since they're all Bitcoin forks, they all use the SHA-256 algorithm, which means the same machines that can mine Bitcoin can also mine uh, these coins as well. And so it really matters for these coins to retain their value in order to incentivize miners to to mine these uh, these chains. Um, but I, I I think that you know people are just going to over time converge on Bitcoin. And when the the day that Bitcoin Cash didn't flip Bitcoin, Christian and I were up in the middle of the night that night. It was a fun it was a fun memory. But that was that was Bitcoin Cash's one big chance to flip Bitcoin. And the fact that it hasn't done it every single day that it fails to flip Bitcoin Cash is another nail in its coffin. Simply because it, being the minority chain in uh, in a proof of work algorithm using the same yeah using the same SHA two fifty six algorithm will always put you as a, at a disadvantage. So Bitcoin Cash and especially Bitcoin SV will always be extremely threatened by this huge presence of Bitcoin mining hash power that could be directed to those chains in order to 51 pretend attack them or reorg their blocks and generally cause, you know, haphazardness in the value of the chain. So that's why things might tend to converge to Bitcoin, at least with the SHA-256 algorithm. Both SV and ABC for Bitcoin Cash are incredibly insecure networks. If you're storing wealth in them, just know that you're the only thing protecting your wealth is minuscule compared to what is on the sidelines, essentially mining Bitcoin. Any major pool in Bitcoin could uh, 51% attack either SV pool or uh, or uh, ABC indefinitely if they wanted to. Um, so, I mean, that kind of that kind of segues into a major difference between proof of work and proof of stake. With proof of stake. There is no such thing as a fork that could attack um, that network, at least from a consensus perspective. Originally, with the, the biggest concern against proof of stake was this thing called the nothing at stake problem. So if you fork the proof of stake funds or the, the proof of stake chain, then then you have double the funds going in two different directions on two different chains. But this was actually easily solved by just uh, being able to submit proofs saying that if token holder A was was validating transactions on both chain one and chain two, then people can report token holder A for validating on, on both chains, and they will be able to be slashed and punished on uh, either chain. 
Um, and so it, it forces a convergence onto one single chain. In the same way that we're talking about Bitcoin and all the Bitcoin miners using their SHA-256 mining mining units to to mine the most profitable chain, proof of work or proof of stake has the same mechanism where it forces people to con- to just pick one chain and it's economically rational to pick the chain with the most funds unless you are willing to burn all of your funds and that actually brings us to a very important difference between proof of work and proof of stake is that a an attacker in proof of stake if they don't succeed they lose all of their attacking power uh, at the end of the day once their uh, attack is done they will have no more stake left and so unlike uh, proof of work attacks proof of work, you still have your computing power left over for another attack, whereas proof of stake, it's effectively deleted and gone. Again, I think one of the biggest knocks on proof of stake is that it still isn't really live in a meaningful way. Some altcoins that have relatively insignificant usage and market capitalization are full proof of stake, but none are battle tested. And as we can see now, like in the last few weeks, there have been several 51% attacks on proof of work chains. So I can assume that um, if the incentives align, there will be proof of attack or there will be DDoS attacks and other sort of malicious activity towards these nascent proof of stake chains as well. It seems like the biggest opportunity for proof of stake to actually prove itself as a viable way to secure significant monetary value is in Ethereum 2.0. The progress of that has been a little slower than some people would have hoped. David, do you kind of want to comment on Ethereum 2.0 and, you know, where proof of stake is right now and actually proving itself in the wild? And so I actually view proof of stake and proof of work on the same spectrum, uh, where like archetypal proof of stake is on one polarity and proof of work is on the other polarity. And we see a lot of uh, projects in the space that say they are some form of proof of stake, like EOS is delegated proof of stake and ARC is delegated proof of stake and so is um, Tezos. But what they are really are, and Dash actually is a good example of, of these projects are actually in the middle of this spectrum. And so EOS is only proof of stake because it limits the working of the machines doing the processing of transactions and it just using people's stake, it makes the competition to mine blocks much more rigid and succinct. And so it's actually a hybrid of proof of work, proof of stake. And the same thing can be said for Dash, which uh, has mining ASICs, just like Bitcoin, but also has these master nodes, which are a staking uh, feature, which is kind of Dash's big claim to fame is this hybrid proof of work, proof of stake thing. But Ethereum uh, is the is the most proof of stakes like system that you can get. Uh, it's it's doubling down on proof of stake as a concept and then using it uh, and expanding it and extrapolating all of the features that proof of stake uh, gives you and using it to your advantage. Uh, so proof of stake is really important for sharding. One of the delays in the advancement of proof of stake was they realized that uh, developing the, the tech for proof of stake and developing this, the tech for sharding really needs to happen hand in hand because those uh, those lines of tech development are really symbiotic with each other. And the idea, the, the security behind proof of stake is that a 51% attack gets really, really expensive because it takes uh, a significant amount of purchasing power to accrue all the funds. And the idea is that like, so if Ether is going for $100, if there's 8 million Ether staked, you'll have to buy 8 million Ether and stake that as well except the price won't stay at $100. Because you are buying 8 million Ether from the secondary markets, that price is going to go up and up and up because you are pulling Ether away from the secondary market. So you could be spending an exorbitant amount of money as the price goes through the moon in order for you to, to attack the system. And then at that point, you have allocated so much capital that you likely won't be really incentivized to harm the system because you have so much of your capital stuck up in the ethereum network i mean that sort of game theory is also true with proof of work right so it takes so much energy and resources to build data centers buy existing data centers buy new hardware um, and essentially make the bitcoin network more and more secure until you finally get to the point where you have 51 percent. and then at that point why would you kill your golden goose you're making tons of money because you're the majority miner on the network um, so sim- I mean, these ideas, uh, and these incentive structures are pretty similar, but 
Again, I think that there are some pretty big nuances between proof of stake, which is essentially is 100% software uh, contained and secured, whereas proof of work is software working with um, crypto, you know, math and um, and nature, all three of those factors. And uh, I do think that those are some very big and important factors of why proof of work has been such a smashing success. I think the important thing to note is that these systems actually are pretty non-competitive with each other. Uh, if you are trying to be the uh, exemplar proof of stake ex- chain that Ethereum is, and you actually aren't in competition with Bitcoin as the uh, exemplar proof of work chain. Uh, Bitcoin is like the most pure proof of work chain that you get. And I actually think the the debate between proof of work and proof of stake is actually much more reflective of a Bitcoin versus Ethereum debate because both of these chains are trying to be the purest form of uh, what they're going after. And so Ethereum is trying to be like the most pure implementation of proof of stake possible. And Bitcoin is the most pure uh, implementation of proof of work possible. Uh, and so like it's it's not it's not a separate argument. Uh, I mean, we could there are different features about Bitcoin and Ethereum that we can talk about. But at the end of the day, like it really boils down to the values behind proof of work and proof of stake. Something that kind of jumps out to me is really weird of how you're talking about Ethereum is that you're saying that Ethereum is the exemplar proof of stake token, which it's not. Ethereum as a staking token is still theoretical. It doesn't exist. So Ethereum 1.0, the current Ethereum, the one that's real, is proof of work. So can you tell me why Ethereum is making the change from proof of work if proof of work is already proven to work? And obviously, there's going to be risk to doing a major hard fork and change incentive mechanisms and all that kind of stuff. Like why take on that danger for proof of stake? Why um, do they think it's so much better? Yeah, um, it's, it's a really good question. It is, it is a hypothetical scenario of Ethereum being proof of stake. Uh, the people often cite the environmental concerns um, that that proof of work brings. I don't totally buy into that. Like, I guess it's nice that we're not having to fund facilities and electrical generation and, and stuff like that. And, and we can do this project, this blockchain project a little bit more, um, more cost effectively. Uh, and I and before, not to go too far down the rabbit hole on that, I kind of uh, consider that like the difference between literal gold mining as Bitcoin mining is compared to, and then like the bond market. I call, I think like Ethereum and proof of stake systems will kind of represent a bond market where you put up you, you put up uh, collateral, like you buy $100 of a bond and then you get $110 back in a few years or so. And so that's, it's not very, it's not very risky and it's not totally rewarding, not in comparison to Bitcoin mining, which is a lot more risky and a lot more rewarding. Um, and so the, the only the reason that I think I mean, I when I talk about Ethereum to to people and I explain it, I explain it almost as if it is in uh, proof of stake, just because that's what everyone is um, gunning for. Uh, and so it's it's just a it much more yeah, it enables a few things. And actually, you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but it enables a few things that I don't think are really possible with um, proof of work chains. And so a lot of a proof of a proof of stake platform like Ethereum, which is accurately considered like a Supreme Court platform where uh, different other staking mechanisms will be separate from Ethereum, but will always answer to Ethereum as the as like the the most supreme court of uh, the uh, crypto economic systems and so you have these you're talking about in the context of shards right no actually um and so take for example omise go is going to have like a plasma sidechain and so there is like their own small little government uh and that is validated by the omg token and not the ethereum token not ether and so all of that validation is its own separate proof of stake chain uh, and then you can you can submit transactions to and for, from the Omisego blockchain to and, and back to Ethereum, in order to operate on that proof of stake chain. And so I and, and this is also true for Loom Network, which is kind of like an EOS copy on top of Ethereum. And then there are going to be a number of other staking, I believe, staking chains that go back and forth between Ethereum. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about uh, proof of stake is that it allows like thousands of separate validation, staking validation mechanisms for other blockchains to be implemented right into it without having to you know, worry about mining 
or and it's just a lot more uh, effective to generate these side chains that use a different um, validation mechanism. I think I follow you there. I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I know that OMG and all this stuff is highly um, connected to Ethereum security. That's, you know, essentially how these tiny inferior networks are reliable because they're tethering themselves to Ethereum and that's kind of what their Ethereum is promising as this kind of like host settlement layer on Web3. Um, is there a parallel for Bitcoin for that analogy? Like, does Bitcoin have like, what, are, are there like side chains that have their own validation mechanism, but it's ultimately up to the Bitcoin main chain? Is there, is there something like that? The way that side chains, from my understanding, have at least the ones that have been kind of proposed on the Bitcoin network, the way that it works is you deposit your Bitcoin into their chain. And essentially, it's like a Bitcoin transaction happened on the Bitcoin blockchain. And then mm-hmm. on their chain, you receive, you know, a Tether token. So like on on uh, on Liquid, which is Blockstream's federated sidechain, it's essentially, you know, federated, no mining is happening for that. Um, all the exchanges that use Liquid um, are validators, right? So you lock up Bitcoin into that system, you get LBitcoin or LBTC, um, you use LBTC on that, and then you you know, you make a transaction, a valid transaction off of liquid onto Bitcoin, and then it unlocks the Bitcoin that was locked up in liquid. And then that Bitcoin is then, you know, returned to an address that you control on the Bitcoin network. Yeah, so that that is pretty similar um, in a way, because uh, what liquid is uh, in the proof of uh, Bitcoin chain is actually the OMG token in the Ethereum chain. And so if liquid was validated by a network of token holders, that would almost be the same thing. Sure. But the difference is that it's federated. It's completely centralized around a company that created it, Blockstream, and there's no tokens. Um, which, I mean, in my opinion, I think that tokens are bad UX. Like, I think eventually maybe people will find a use case for some tokens, but the majority of unnecessary tokens is just really bad UX. Yeah, it's really going to be up to the individual token holders. Like for the OMG network, as a user of the OMG network, you don't actually need the token to participate on it. Uh, it's really just if you want to do that extra little bit of work by buying the token and staking it to receive the uh, transaction fees on the OMG network. And so it's really up to you. Um, I do agree that there is a huge UX issue, especially when you have thousands and thousands of tokens, but I think it's going to be abstracted and simplified over the long term as good um, development and and new features come onto Ethereum. Uh, For example, um, there is a method for people to transact in DAI, the US dollar stablecoin on Ethereum without having to use Ether. There's our proposals being put forth where uh, when you send DAI somewhere, the in order to pay the, your gas fee, you are automatically sell DAI for Ether and send that to the miner. And so that abstracts away Ether. Uh, so you don't have to have Ether to send your DAI. Um, and so I think a lot of abstraction tools like that will really help the proof of stake uh, user experience system for all these different tokens. Interesting. Do you think that proof of stake can exist as a replacement to proof of work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and so this kind of comes down to this thesis that I've tended to converge on recently is that the only two chains that are going to exist in the future are Bitcoin and Ethereum. And that has to do with the fact that each one is the exemplar um, consensus mechanism in their realm. Uh, so. Bitcoin is going to survive because it's the best proof of work chain and Ethereum is going to survive because it's got all the minds behind it trying to create the most uh, the most pure proof of stake system. Uh, and so that's, that's what I was getting to when I was saying like these systems are not uh, competing because your value in Ethereum doesn't compete with the mining of Bitcoin. Uh, and so I think these these two chains are really going to be all, all the chains that are going to be in the future. Uh, but the cool thing about Ethereum and proof of stake is that it allows other staking tokens to exist on top of it rather than as a competition to it. Um, and so I think the future for many different the many different blockchains world is really just the many different blockchains on top of Ethereum world. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with or against that. Again, I I feel like a lot of tokens are bad UX, but outside of that, it a lot of people are working on making it happen. So only time will tell, right? It looks like there's a lot of tokens and coins and uh, startups that are building these Ethereum dApps are not going to make it past 2018 or 2019. Hmm. Uh, but 
there are some diamonds in the rough starting to peek their head out. So the experiment continues. Absolutely. One topic I wanted to talk about was in an episode in the past, uh, I can't remember which one it was, but you brought up Kevin Fram's uh, meme about how proof of stake is an extension cord plugged into itself or a power cord plugged into itself. And I would agree that's what proof of stake is if you don't have value in your token. And that illustration uh, talks about why uh, cryptocurrency started with a proof of work coin, not a proof of stake coin. And I actually think that's a really important story in with Ethereum is that Ethereum must have started as a proof of work coin in order to do a bunch of really important things such as proliferate funds um, and, and buy time for proof of stake to really get locked down. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree with the concept that you can't start with valueless tokens in order to have proof of stake, because if your tokens are valueless, then your stake is valueless, and then you have nothing at stake, therefore you can just lose whatever. Um, but the fact that Ethereum grew to what is currently a 9.9, .9, oof, under $10 billion market cap, um, <laughs> wrecked. Uh, but you know, 10 billion is still pretty good. It's it's far better than it was when it was just a few dollars. And going to transitioning to proof of stake as a few dollars is much less secure than transitioning to proof of stake at $100. My counter argument to the uh, proof of stake is a extension cord plugged into itself is that it's a extension, it's a power cord plugged into itself, except there is a, uh, a microphone and a speaker right next to each other. And whether or not a proof of stake system takes off is really a function of how well that value is projected from the speaker and is captured by the microphone. And so it's a positive feedback loop. And if there's enough signal there, and the, the, the speaker and microphone represent the economy that's inside of a proof of stake system. And so if there is enough signal, if there's enough activity, if there's enough value being transferred, the proof of stake system should enter a positive feedback loop that provides it the security that it needs to be going on into the distant future. I am not, you know, a networks, you know, consensus scientist or anything like that. So I really don't have a super valid opinion of whether or not proof of stake can or cannot work. But I do want to differentiate it from proof of work in some key ways. The first key way is Proof of work as, and mining as a distrib coin distribution, as well as a as a constant like expense, right? So every time mines or blocks are mined by miners, they can't hold on to a hundred percent of their earnings. They have to pay electricity, they have to pay employees, they have to do a lot of stuff to keep the facilitate the facility operating, as well as even stay competitive, they have to continuously reinvest into more hardware, not into more tokens, right? So proof of work keeps miners honest. And it's so competitive that if you're not good, you'll be out of business in a second. You're even seeing today Bitmain is falling apart, where six months ago it had like a billion, a multi-billion dollar quarter. Like, you know, one day to the next, it can completely change with proof of work just because, you know, hashing and all that stuff is so competitive. And when it comes to proof of stake, there's so many less incentives to redistribute the new blocks and the inflation, right? Essentially, early stakeholders or people who have lots of stake keep getting uh, uh, interest and they keep accumulating and then they keep buying new nodes or getting new validators. And that's a centralizing effect as well as it stops the inflow of new tokens into the general economy and it accumulates those tokens amongst the stakers. Whereas proof of work has almost like a fairness built into it because you can't afford to just hoard the tokens and keep building more proprietary stakers. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good point. Uh, Bitcoin does have the most proliferated uh, token supply. So it, it, it has the most decentralized ownership of tokens out of all the chains out there. So you can, it's definitely an inarguable point that um, Bitcoin has this, this uh, diffusing force. Um, and one of the big critiques of proof of stake is that the rich get richer um, because since the rich have all the funds, they and they are the ones that allow the funds to be accrued to themselves. But I think there's an important point that people miss is that if you are like a top 10 Ethereum holder or maybe like all of the top 100 Ethereum holders and you, all of your funds are getting staked and you are receiving all of the inflation, 
Well, the only way that the rich continue to get richer is if all of their capital is not available to them. Uh, and so you can think of it as like, well, they get this this yearly or this weekly dividend payment from the inflation that's in the in the system, but they don't they don't actually get access to it. And the only way that they get access to it is if they stop staking. Uh, and so the rich might get richer, but they don't actually have access to any of their funds. And so if they, they, they can either do two things, they can keep all of their funds that they uh, keep all their block rewards and all their transaction fees and as, as they stake and keep them for themselves in order to be able to stake more, but then they have no access to their funds or they can sell their, their new block rewards, their new ether that they got from, from staking. Uh, and then they can sell that into the supply in order to have the benefit of staking. And that kind of acts as if you want, if you want any sort of value return, uh, you have to you have to sell it, or else all of your all of your value is locked away forever. And so that acts as like a counter argument to the fact that the rich get richer and it doesn't the tokens don't proliferate. I'm sorry, I I don't really buy that 100 percent because you're inferring that they have no choice but to stake 100 percent or nothing, whereas they they could easily stake 90 percent or stake 80 percent and accumulate, you know accumulate the interest into non-staking wallets you know theoretically ethereum should be quote-unquote uh monetary unit so uh should be very liquid uh you know they don't necessarily have to sell that ethereum to be able unless they're actually going to spend it um so uh don't 100 percent buy that that rationalization again not saying that proof of stake is not going to work just trying to point out why it's not the same as proof of work and why proof of work is important yeah, fair enough. Um, that being said, though, if they are only staking 90% and in order to gain access to that 10%, but if they're just sitting on that 10% and don't really know what to do with it, they might as well also be staking that. Um, and so it's really a matter of how do how does your new value, what do you do with your new value? Do you either keep it and hoard it and not really use it so you can get more new value? Or do you sell it um, in order to exchange it for some other form of value like, you know, some outside outside Ethereum value. It could work. It's just not the same and arguably not as fair um, and definitely not as competitive. Um, one of the other reasons people bring up proof of stake as a viable alternative to proof of work is because of energy concerns. I know neither of us actually kind of buy into that so much, but should we talk about that a little bit and maybe address that? Yeah, I'd actually like to, we can talk about it in the context of competitiveness, um, because the competitiveness competitiveness is one of the things that really drives um, electricity consumption by Bitcoin miners. And I think there's, there's two sides to that coin, where the competitiveness really drives efficiency and rewarding um, the best Bitcoin miners, and therefore the best uh, security for Bitcoin. But I, I think that that might ultimately result in a negative benefit towards uh, Bitcoin in the long run, simply because of the undesirable uh, costs of having to constantly be ahead of the game. Um, I mean, maybe this maybe this reflects just normal business uh, competition and, and survival of the fittest companies. And so maybe maybe there's nothing here. Um, but over time, especially when block rewards come down and it's just based on transaction fees, uh, I, I'm, I'm worried that the transaction fee mechanic isn't going to justify uh, the the survival of the fittest competition for Bitcoin mining. And we might see some um, some some questions as to the security of the Bitcoin blockchain. I mean, one of the biggest areas of uncertainty is whether a fee market is going to successfully replace the block reward. I think that if Bitcoin becomes valuable, and I think Bitcoin's binary, it's either zero or everything, then no shit the fee market is going to sustain it. You know, you have to think like how much buying power is Satoshi going to have? You know, we're thinking in 13 blocks right now, or 13, right now 13.5 or 2.5 Bitcoin get rewarded every single block. But right now Bitcoin, a you know, one of those 13 is worth $3,000, right? So what if it's 0. 0.0006 reward plus maybe five Bitcoin as a, you know, as in fees, but each Bitcoin is a hundred million dollars worth of worth of buying power. That's going to buy you a shitload of electricity, a shitload of um, ASIC. You know, it's going to continue to bribe people to secure the network. Um, so I'm not that concerned. If Bitcoin works, I'm not concerned about the fee market. If Bitcoin doesn't work, then 
you know, obviously the fee market is going to be a failure as part of that. I don't think Bitcoin can be successful and not have a fee market that works. It just doesn't make any sense. But in terms of, you know, competition, uh, I feel like right now the price of Bitcoin has been mooning even in this bear market. It's still 0 to 3,000 in 10 years. It's pretty incredible. But um, over time, as people have adopted Bitcoin, theoretically, there are going to be things that are worth you putting electricity towards that will be competitive, you know, more competitive than Bitcoin. So there's going to be this like plateauing effect, right? So hash rate is skyrocketing with price as price plateaus and becomes stable. So will hash rate and uh, therefore, you know, there'll be a lot of facilities like the ones that Bunker Capital is building where it's going to be a Bitcoin mine when no one is burning electricity and there's no demand on the grid. And then it's going they're going to shut off the miners and they're going to um, they're going to sell electricity to the grid at night when it's high power times. Right. So it's going to actually create um, this kind of dynamic on and off hash um, across the globe that is just going to make the world more efficient. And, you know, you're going to have cities get powered, and you're going to have a secure money system. So one of the things that, that I'm potentially concerned about with the future of Bitcoin security is, that, I mean, this might be in 2100 or 2150 or some like really far away time. Um, so it might be worthless to talk about now because, you know, we'll all be dead. So who cares? Uh, Bitcoin will, Bitcoin block rewards will eventually approach zero. Uh, and at that point, we kind of have a similar, similar situation where, uh, the Bitcoin, oh, I guess not actually. I was going to say it's either the fee market works or it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it goes back to the fee market. Okay. Well, let's uh, in, in the topic of issuance, let's talk about um, Bitcoin's finite supply then, because since block rewards approach zero, it the the finite supply of Bitcoin is going to you know provide the same sort of uh, incentive of um, of purchasing it because you know you have a percentage share of the network. And that is that's a very frequent criticism I hear of proof of stake because it has constant inflation, or at least the implementation that Ethereum has. Um, ooh, excuse me, not constant inflation, but it's actually dynamic. And so, what's cool about proof of stake is that the less stakers there are, the more um, issuance of ether there is in order to incentivize staking. And so, if um, if there's the, the target is for 8 million ether to be staked. And so if less than if, if that the number of stakers goes down to like 2 million, the uh, amount of issued ether like doubles in order to incentivize more staking. And so it's a dynamic equilibrium. And so I think that mechanism is pretty cool. But I think the really cool mechanism and I'm going to pull this up after I um, give you back your the, the mic, Christian, is is that uh, if a, a 2% um, inflation for stakers or maybe three or four percent. If if these stakers get paid at, at two to four to five percent, total inflation of the Ethereum network is only like one quarter of a percent total over the year because that inflation only goes to stakers. And so it's not like the supply of of the total supply of ether is is reaching this five percent. It's only the supply that of staked ether that inflates by five percent. And so it's a seriously low issuance of of ether in order to provide network security. I think there's a lot of theoretics when it comes to are the you know is this inflation amount going to inc even incentivize people to stake that much ether um you know it seems like it's something that is being experimented with right now and just like the is the fee market going to sustain bitcoin it's essentially a complete unknown so we're just going to have to wait and see again I think that one thing to think about here is these developers that are making these decisions, you know, what it seems like they're 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 kind of designing this stuff outside of reality, right? They have a test network. It seems like making the switch from proof of work to proof of stake has failed on the test network. Um, but outside of that, there's not much like real skin in the game when it comes to, uh, or not. I don't think skin in the game is the right word, but there's not enough like you know, reality being hit with these theories before people are already preaching how they're going to change the world. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but that, that is just goes with the complexity of Ethereum and proof of stake. Um, and so Bitcoin has the simplicity value. Um, and but I think the complexity value once once it gets figured out, and I do believe the Ethereum people have the right people to, um, to figure out the complexity issues behind proof of stake. But once you do figure it out, 
um, the the value generative uh, properties um, that cryptocurrency offers to the world, I think will largely happen inside of proof of stake simply because of how much more things you can do on a smart contracting proof of stake platform. Um, going back to the, the, the interest payments, I just pulled up the document. Um, so like I said, uh, they're targeting eight to 10 million total network stake. Uh, and so that would provide validators 2.5% interest. Uh, and then the total network issuance would be um, one quarter percent, like I said. And then even if it goes up to uh, 100,000 Ether or 100 million Ether staked, which is almost the majority of Ether, which is would never happen, the total network issuance is just 0.77% uh, uh, total uh, inflation of the supply. And so uh, what's that guy? The guy that went on to... Um, Anthony Pompliano's podcast and did the the Bitcoin argument Marad. episode, which everyone should listen to because it's really valuable. Yeah, Murad. He he talks about how the fact that Bitcoin's finite supply will force people to buy Bitcoin just as like a prisoner's dilemma kind of thing, um, simply because if if it has a finite supply and everyone wants it, you also better own some because of the the promise of the network owning the network. And I think I think Ethereum might actually provide a stronger mechanism than than simply the finite supply, simply because uh, more and more Ether might be dedicated towards staking over time, and so supply of Ether on the secondary market might always be drying up over time as people use whatever capital they have to purchase Ether to stake it. Uh, and so, whereas Bitcoin will be a finite supply, Ether might be a deflating supply which i think would be an enticing value proposition i feel like that's kind of almost a dystopian future for ether because if the best thing you can do with your ether is stake it for lessening and lessening inflation then that means there's literally nothing happening that requires ether so i don't know if that's necessarily a good thing um to just have all the ether being dedicated to staking um again we don't know what the appreciation of ether is going to look like and if that's going to be possible but at the same time you know, if the killer app for Ether is to stake Ether, like, I don't think that's super productive. And in the case of Bitcoin mining, again, it's super productive to build mining facilities. Um, you could say it burns a lot of energy, but it's freaking productive. People are building these facilities. Uh, I think these facilities are going to be pushing the, the realm for efficiencies in the grid. Um, but beyond that, you know, it's super productive. It's employing a lot of people. Um, things are getting produced infrastructure is being built it's uh it's kind of the opposite of you know digging all of your your capital into staking there is there is going to be i think this huge equilibrium tug of war between the desire to stake tokens and the desire to sell tokens whereas the price on the secondary market will always reflect the equal and opposite demand to unstake your tokens and sell um, and then also there's going to be other things to do with your ether on ethereum like put it into augur and put it into MakerDAO and do other sort of take staking things that um, require Ether and the, the locking up of Ether in order to uh, transact value to the system. So I think that's actually gonna be a really interesting thing to pay attention to is as all these different dApps fight over Ether, um, the, the, and that's, that's partly why the interest payments on uh, Ethereum are dynamic in order to create this sort of e equilibrium is that a bunch of different um, services on Ethereum are going to fight for staked Ether, and that includes the proof of stake consensus mechanism. Uh, and so all of these things are going to be buying for the staking of Ether or the locking up of Ether inside of their platform. And then all of that will be counteracted by the price on the secondary market as will be the incentive to unstake Ether. Uh, and so that's partly why I think Ether has taken such a big hit in this market is that it was promised proof of stake soon and then it didn't come. And so there's not really too much to do with your ether in in terms of locking it up like you can lock it up inside of MakerDAO or make a bet on auger but those are really the only two things you can do with your eager ether at the moment that, that involve locking it up and so since there's so much supply on the secondary market uh price goes down um and as soon as soon as there's more and more activities to do with staking ether uh, i think the value of ether should go up and therefore the network security of proof of stake will go high yeah, and David, I know that you are very excited to participate in Ether staking in the future. Can you kind of tell us a little bit more about that and why you're so stoked? I know for me, I would mess with some mining, but nothing significant and nothing, you know, I wouldn't even care about being profitable. It'd be about getting 
anon bitcoins that's that would be the reason i'd mine but you know outside of that there's not much of incentive for me to mine but you are super stoked to stake eventually so why are you so stoked to stake well because staking really allows for um people with capital to use their capital uh effectively from the comfort of their own home uh using their desktop computer or their laptop or whatever or a staking pool and so it it when we talk about how crypto enables like a redistribution of wealth, I see, um, you know, home staking in the same way I saw, I, we all saw like home mining in the early days of Bitcoin. Um, and so I, I will be building a computer that, that has like redundant network connections in order to make sure my node is always online. And then I'm going to have like a, a, a mechanism for my hardware wallet to connect into that, that home computer. And I'm going to be able to stake my ether myself and be a, a, a node validator on Ethereum. And it, it makes me feel powerful personally. It makes me feel like somebody like who had that power to only, only like pre in the legacy financial system, only somebody with wall street would be able to take, you know, a bunch of U.S. dollars and buy a bunch of the bonds and effectively lock up that dollar for an interest payment. Uh, it's the same kind of thing, but now I get to do it from the comfort of my own home in a permissionless manner with the funds that I purchased because I, I, you know, that's what I wanted to do with my capital. And then I get some sort of capital return on my investment. And so when we talk about these open finance platforms, uh, staking your own coins uh, under your own node is something that I think um, is a great example of open finance i think it is a beautiful dream and i don't know i i again i would love it to come true i feel like proof of stake is sort of coming true in bitcoin with the lightning network uh to some degree um you do stake your bitcoins in a lightning channel and then by making your node available for routing payments you can earn um incremental fees so uh, there is sort of that incentive mechanism and that ability kind of arising in Bitcoin too. And I'm super excited for that. Uh, there's already like the Casa hardware wallet and several others that it's a node and a lightning node in a box and you just plug and play and then boom, you got it both with Bitcoin. Um, but again, uns- you know, I-, I think that people in Bitcoin are excited by that idea of being a sovereign person and being able to stake your tokens too to, to get paid. Um, I think the big skeptic uh, or, you know, area for skepticism is really around, can you rely on proof of stake as, you know, its own thing um, to be better than proof of work? Yeah. And I think that it just goes back to risk tolerance. Uh, And I think one of the biggest differentiators between you and me, Christian, is that I'm a lot more open to risk and experimentation. And I think that you are, want to be a lot more secure in your investments and don't really want to speculate. Um, And so when you know that Bitcoin is basically almost in its final form, I would say Bitcoin is in its final form, actually. Um, And, and I think that, uh, that's attractive to you, but I get, I'm a little bit more risky and I'm a little bit more adventurous and uh, ready to, to put my money where my mouth is, even though the proof of stake really hasn't been implemented yet. But um, I think with, with risk comes reward. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I think we're getting, we've had a pretty, pretty good debate here and I don't want to keep beating up on proof of stake again. It's, it's going to happen. I mean, it might happen. We'll see. I'm excited to see it. You know what I'm excited to see? I'm excited to see if proof of stake becomes something that gains mass adoption on Lightning Network before it happens on on Ethereum. Mm. Because there's already a live implementation of Lightning Network happening right now. I would have to say that uh, a proof of stake system, I mean, Lightning Network is more like staking rather than proof of stake because it's not validating any any transactions. But yeah, it is a staking mechanism on top of proof of work. Um, And so there is... There is something to be said about the security of having Bitcoin's blockchain and then staking on top of that. Um, it's a much faster way to get to a staking mechanism. But it doesn't have sharding and it doesn't have smart contracts and all that stuff. Uh, I think I think this was pretty good. Speaking of the Lightning Network, uh, tentatively have a expert in Lightning Network economics confirmed for January. Won't tease the name quite yet, but... If you are in the Bitcoin community, you know of this gentleman. He's put out some excellent writing, so super excited about that. Again, we really appreciate the support and the love on Twitter and just sharing us around. It makes me feel good that we're putting out content that fills a need in the space. You can catch me on Twitter, CK underscore snarks. 
David, where can the fans uh, find you? I'm at Trustless Date, both on Medium and on Twitter. And you can also follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. We are always on Twitter, so hit us up with this feedback. Uh, send us what topics you want us to talk about, and we will add them to our list. And in the meantime, please rate and review our episodes. We really need it. All right, guys. Get us to 30, baby. To the moon. It's a fool.